Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Asset Allocation Weekly Report dated May 7th, 2021. Today we return to the inflation theme, but from a slightly different angle. We're going to take a close look at the process used by the Confluence Investment Management Asset Allocation Committee to arrive at its current outlook on inflation. I'm Phil Adler. I'm speaking with Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady. Bill, first of all, is the process the committee followed to come to a consensus on the inflation outlook the same process no matter what subject the committee tackles? Yes. Essentially, we start with what we know, and then we make probabilistic assessments on what we know we don't know. That path isn't really all that unique, although using a committee process does offer a dispersion of forecasts and assessments. And The process of openly discussing how one arrived at their forecast potentially exposes any biases that may have led to the predictions. Finally, due to the disparity of viewpoints, we can at least attempt to intuit the most difficult part, you know, the part that we just don't think we know. Why is now the right time to discuss this process? Is it because you and the committee feel the public has a fear of inflation that is not entirely logical? and that could result in unwise investment decisions? Well, well, not exactly. We have concerns about inflation too. And we believe as part of our expectation of a shift from an efficiency cycle to an equality cycle is where that inflation concern comes from. As part of this expectation, we have implemented bond ladders for portfolios and, and fixed income and have added precious metals and commodities too. Our concern is that investors may assume that the mere injection of liquidity in the economy will, by default, trigger inflation. Although this may occur, the fact that cash is mostly held by the most affluent households could mean that we get asset instead of price inflation. However, an element of an inequality cycle is to improve the financial situation of the bottom 90% of households, and that may foster inflation. But so far, there isn't much evidence to suggest that inequality is falling. And to reiterate, what is the committee's inflation outlook? Well, we don't expect inflation to necessarily come from the current fiscal and monetary expansion, and we think asset price inflation is more likely. Bill, your firm leans strongly on a committee approach to reach decisions. What are the strengths of the committee approach? Well, there are essentially two models of money management, the committee system and the star system. The latter relies on a single person to make allocation decisions. The advantage is that if the star is really good, her decisions won't be diluted or slowed by others. But the problem with the star approach is that there really isn't a check on the star. It may be that they only perform well under certain conditions. And if the star becomes incapacitated, the portfolio has to be abandoned. A committee overcomes the problem of the wayward star and it can live on past the incapacitation of that particular member. But committees only work, number one, if they have diversity. And this isn't necessarily about race, religion, or gender. It really requires a variation of thought and process. We achieve this diversity, or at least attempt to, by having members with different intellectual backgrounds. We have bottom-up equity analysts, top-down economists, private equity analysts, philosophers, archaeologists, members with multilingual skills. It isn't just a collection of CFA MBA types. A diverse group can look at unknowns from different angles and come up with fresh insights. There's another key component, too. The committee has to be collegial. 
differing opinions have to be heard and opposing viewpoints settled in an amicable manner. Even if an idea isn't accepted in the final consensus, at least it was tested in its hearing. What about size? What is the ideal size for a functioning committee of this type? And where does confluence fit on the scale? Well, in my opinion, a minimum of three is required, if and only if the members have obviously differing viewpoints. My experience has been that once you get past 10, it becomes unwieldy. I can think of potential weaknesses in the committee approach. I can see how the process can go off track if one person is recognized as leader and the others fall in line to appease the leader's outlook and maybe protect their positions. How do you guard against this? That's a really good point, Phil. It is not unusual for asset managers to be run by tyrants. After all, it takes a bit of ego strength to think that you have something to say and others should listen as well. Guarding against that is really all about personality. Greg Elston, our CIO for asset allocation, and Mark Keller, the overall firm CIO, are both humble and open. Guarding against this issue is a key thing for asset managers' management. You've mentioned that a functioning committee demands a a variety of different backgrounds and outlooks, especially intellectual ones. Let's dive a bit further into this. How is this variety reflected in the Confluence Committee? Well, uh, just to give you a flavor for it, I used to be a Jesuit, so I have all the educational background of that organization. Kaiser uh, is an Estonian and grew up in the Soviet Union. Patrick was an analyst for the CIA. Patty Dahl was a private equity analyst and manager. Mark had undergraduate work in archaeology and classics. Dave is a CFA. Greg worked in manager analysis at A.G. Edwards. We have historians, philosophers, a couple of CFAs, a sprinkling of MBAs, economists. It's a varied background from an intellectual standpoint. And you use a tool called the Jahari window to, uh, I've never heard of this, to help guide the committee's discussions. Briefly, how does this work? It's something I adapted from psychology. In psychology, it helps a patient determine who he is compared to who other people think he is. Now, where this became famous was Don Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense, used to use it when he discussed risk and uncertainty. There, there is what you know and things you need to know that you can identify that you need to know, but you don't know. These are what we refer to as risks, which we can probably determine a probability distribution around. That covers the top row of, of a Jahari window. The second row is where it gets more interesting. The third quadrant is where bias lives. It's what you think you know, but you really don't. This area is incredibly dangerous because it can lead you on a decision path in the face of contrary information because you simply aren't accepting that information because, well, you already know what's going on. The fourth quadrant, uh, this is what Rumsfeld made famous, is when he referred to it as the unknown unknowns. This is where pure uncertainty lies. It's things that are out there that you don't know about. Nicholas Taleb wrote a book on this called The Black Swan. In my opinion, the only way you can get at events in the quadrant of this area is through intuition. This is why algorithms and pure models always struggle. First, bias is baked into the code by the creator. And second, no computers can intuit. They only do induction better than humans can. I really find this Fascinating. What kind of biases can emerge as as you follow this blueprint? Give us some examples. 
Well, here's a classic one from the last decade. As the Fed increased the money supply and engaged in quantitative easing, a whole group of economists, mostly monetarists and free market types, wailed that inflation was inevitable. This, of course, was wrong. But the wrongness was due more to a belief of how the economy worked instead of a full assessment of the assumptions of their thinking. In economic terms, they assumed the velocity of money was stable. It isn't, and it slowed, and inflation never came. So the key to understanding your biases, which, which by the way, we all share, is understanding the assumptions that are tied to your worldview. Well, what kind of biases emerged in this particular instance as you discussed inflation? Well, the current one is similar to the one we saw in the last decade, and it's partly based on experience. Now, you know, I'm a baby boomer, and, and the baby boomers' worst economic experience came in the high inflation years of the 1970s, and they're always looking over their shoulder, assuming that another round is coming. And so when they see high money growth and expansive fiscal policy, they say to themselves, ah, it's just like it was in the 70s. But there are key differences. First, inequality is much higher, and much of the cash that is being injected into the economy is being held in high-income households. They're more likely to hold assets other than cash. I'm an avid listener to Financial Market Podcast, and it is almost universally held by the podcasting community that inflation is coming. And so when the podcast moderator asks, well, what should an investor do in this situation? The usual response is Bitcoin investing. So it should come as no shock that Bitcoin prices are up. But less affluent households probably won't react to inflation the same way. They're most likely to stock up. They're, they're going to buy stuff, food, and, and other materials to put in the basement. Second, there are other ways to protect against inflation now. It's much more likely, we think, that we'll see asset inflation. But in our view, at some point, the inequality will be addressed. And when that occurs, inflation will become much more likely. Talking about these biases, they're very closely held, and as you mentioned or alluded to, they're, they're tied to our views of ourselves and, and what we've experienced in the past. I would think they would be very difficult to overcome. How do you do it? How do you overcome it? Well, it's hard. We do it with a committee, which if enough diversity exists and differing positions can be safely held, Biases can be overcome by ex at least exposing their base assumptions. And back to the inflation discussion, what are the facts that the committee initially agreed on or came to agree on? Well, the consensus we came to is that we concluded that although inflation is possible, the structure of cash distribution, high debt levels, the scarring of job insecurity that will likely lead to much more caution among low-income households, which would be the most likely to spend on goods. And refresh our memory, how are these facts reflected in the, in the current Confluence Asset Allocation Investment Recommendations? Well, I, I do want to reiterate. We do worry about structural inflation, and we have taken steps to address that, you know, through bond laddering, through the addition of precious metals and commodities into the portfolio. But most of the positioning is assuming bull markets and risk assets. You talked about the final box in the Jabari window, which is uncertainty, and that's where intuition comes into play. There could be a war tomorrow or another pandemic or, or very sudden climate change. I mean, these are things that nobody could predict, right? It's interesting you say that. You can sometimes predict that there will be an occurrence, but it's almost impossible to predict the timing. 
For example, I wrote about pandemics related to bird flu in 2006. So it's, it is a topic I have some familiarity with, but we didn't predict this one. But because we had thought about the potential issue before, we were able to determine a path rather quickly. Wars are similar. We are watching China, especially the situation with Taiwan and, and with Russia. It's important to note the conditions can spiral into war. Uh, it can be easy to see, but difficult to pinpoint in time. In other words, it's kind of like predicting tornadoes. You know when the conditions exist for a tornado to occur, but pinpointing exactly the time is very difficult. So the important thing to know is that we do watch for a lot of different things. And our goal is to have break glass ideas for portfolio construction if something happens. A couple of final questions, Bill, on the inflation issue. The committee's stance has been consistent over the past several months. Has there been anything surprising so far that made the committee seriously question its recommendations? Well, one of the things we are watching is the political situation, especially the fiscal situation. We were a little bit surprised that the Senate races in Georgia ended up going to the Democrats. We assumed that at least one of those seats would remain with the GOP, and, and thus we anticipated a divided Congress rather than a unified one. With the Democrats getting control of the legislature uh, was a bit of a surprise, but it's also compromised by the thin margins that they hold. So far, they have remained remarkably unified and focused and moved rather quickly, but the next leg of their legislation will be much more difficult. But if all the fiscal effort goes in, we'll be watching very closely to see what happens to see if we need to adjust our inflation outlooks. Looking at the latest data, the PCI, the Personal Consumptions Index Core Price Deflator for March, widely observed measure of inflation. It was released last week. It was up 1.8% year over year. Was this right in line with your expectations? I was actually looking for something uh, right around 2%, so it was a little lower than I expected. Thank you, Bill. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. <laughs>